0: It is good to be gathered together this morning. My name is Jonathan, and I get to be pastor here at Journey. And it is a beautiful, almost fall like day. Can you believe that? I don't know what we did to, be, to get so uh, fortunate to have a little bit of chill in the air, but I am glad that we did it. Uh, it was a beautiful morning today. Uh, I want to um, take a minute before we get too far into our sermon and recognize that today is a day of significance um, in our country, for sure, and um, in the world um, as well. Um, Of course, that is the day of September 11th. Uh, In 2001, it was a day that, um, in many ways, changed the course of history. Uh, I remember that uh, morning vividly, I was having a conversation with some people this week um, as we were talking about uh, September 11th and the events that transpired. And um, I'm sure that for most of us in this room, uh, in one way or another, we will remember the events of that day and um, are charged with the task of remembering um, so that we um, don't forget, um, not only that we don't forget the event, but also that we don't forget uh, the patterns that lead to that event. Um, one of the uh, ways in the Christian tradition for us to address um, situations such as this um, is through a spiritual practice known as lament. Anybody ever heard of lament? Lament. It's also a book in the Bible named Lamentations, uh, which is a book full of laments. Um, But lament is really a a spiritual practice that I feel like that the church has sort of left behind. We don't really spend much time in lament. But the reason why it's important is because we live in this sort of dichotomy where we live in, obviously, the world, right? We Uh, have our daily interactions on the planet with our feet firmly planted in the world. But also we recognize that we do not belong to the world, right? That there is more going on than the story of the world, that there is the kingdom of God, which is at hand, which is unfolding all around us. And so we live in these sort of two realities. And lament is kind of our way of stating that we recognize the fallen brokenness that uh, keeps the world in its grips, but also we see the beauty of God that is shining through the cracks. And so we, Because we recognize this, we have this position which is sort of in between these two realities. The reality of brokenness and the reality of love. And we cry out in the brokenness for the love to uh, reign fully and holy um, as we uh, follow, continue following the way of Jesus. And so as we Uh, Think about the events of 9-11. I wrote a lament for us uh, that I wanted to begin the message with today. O God, our God, today we cry out, how long? How long, O Lord, must we endure an order where hate overflows from one having the possibility of devastating a nation. How long must we live in a world obsessed with the ways of violence? How long must we wait until the next tragedy, which we are employed never to forget? 21 years have passed, yet this day is forever marred with the memories of the towers that fell, the lives that lost, the questions of why—how could we be, be? How could someone be so calloused, filled with such hate, hell-bent to inflict their brokenness on others? This question of how pervades our minds as each year passes. Still, Lord, we trust in you. The prophets of old foretold of a world where violence is no more, where there is neither victim nor perpetrator, innocent nor terrorist, where weapons are rendered as useless as except as plowshares, where all live in peace. But until that day, we cry out, We know that you hear our prayers and that you are near to the brokenhearted. As we remember, we ask that you would be near today to all those whose loved ones lost their lives 21 years ago. Replace their tears with joy, their sorrow with peace. We recognize the hate which is memorialized this day still exists. Not only in the lives of our enemies, but unfortunately in our lives as well. As we remember, search us, O God. Uproot within us any animosity towards our neighbor. Pluck from our lives any roots of hate that might cause us to look down on our neighbor. Enable us to live in tune with your Spirit that animosity, fear, frustration, judgment, and rage might not have fertile soil within our lives, that we might live as examples of grace and peace, that our enemies might say of us, they retaliated our violence with cups of cold water, they visited us in our prisons of rage, they comforted us, in our depression of fear. Until this day, we look to you. We remember for now, and we trust in your unfailing love. As we turn to the scriptures today, would you pray this prayer with me? Prepare our hearts, O God, to accept your word. Silence in us any voice but your own, that in hearing we may also trust in your ways. Through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Have you ever muttered something under your breath? Anybody? Anybody willing to admit that? Maybe uh, today you muttered something under your breath, but odds are that whenever you mutter something, it's probably not something that you are comfortable saying out loud, which is why you mutter it, right? And it's probably something that you should just not say in general, right? So uh, perhaps maybe we should develop a philosophy which says, if this is something that I need to mutter, I should not say it. Uh, But the Pharisees were not wise to that yet, and they fell victim to uh, this muttering as we have often found ourselves, where they looked at Jesus and they heaped criticism on him saying that he, he keeps company with people he should not keep company with. And of course, Jesus wouldn't stand for that and he offers them a different perspective But uh, I want to, before we get into this different perspective, think about these two parables when something is lost. Have you ever lost something and you were consumed by finding it? Anybody ever been there? The other day, uh, last Sunday, actually, we left for my mom's house um, in Wichita Falls. We usually go there on Labor Day weekend. My mom's house is um, nice and relaxing, and she has a pool, so um, it's fun for the kids to swim and enjoy um, a relaxing Labor Day. Several years ago, I noticed my kids were having so much fun in the pool And the reason why they were having so much fun is because they had goggles on, and they could swim under the water, and they could hunt for things that they dropped down into the bottom of the water. And so I decided, you know what? I'm going to purchase a pair of goggles that I can bring with me and enjoy too, just like all of the little kids. And so um, I found a nice pair of goggles that I could buy. They fit my face well. They were wonderful goggles. I don't know what makes goggles wonderful other than they keep water out of your eyes, but these did that well. And so they were fantastic for me when I had them at my mom. So fantastic that I wanted to protect them and keep them in a safe place. So that safe place for me was my sock drawer. And the problem with putting them in my sock drawer is that I often forget them when we go to my mom's house. They are so protected in my sock drawer that I forget about them. And uh, this time, however, I remembered to get my goggles and pack them in my bag. There was only one problem. When I went to get my goggles out of my sock drawer, they were not there. And so I did what I always do when I can't find something. I went to Kelly and I said, Kelly, where are my goggles? What have you done with my goggles? She said, I haven't touched your goggles. I do not know where your goggles are. Why are you even asking me about those goggles? And she said, maybe you should look in the swim bag because maybe you left them in there. I said, no, I would not mix my goggles with the kids' goggles but I'll go look just to humor you. So I go and I look in the goggle bag and there's probably five or six pairs of goggles. Half of them are broken and none of them are my goggles. So I returned back to my sock drawer. I looked more thoroughly, could not find them. And then I thought, okay, you know, sometimes if you have a drawer that is too full of stuff, it can push things out and maybe it fell into one of the other drawers or maybe it just fell out into the dresser. And so I went through all of the other drawers, I took everything out, trying to find my goggles, and I still could not find them. And at this point, I'm beginning to get irritated, and it's pretty silly to get irritated over something such so trivial, but I was irritated nonetheless. Um, so I, I went and I looked in my bag, and I went and I you know, looked everywhere that I could think of, where are my goggles? And finally... I went back to my sock drawer, back to the original place where I had begun this 10 minute long journey to find these goggles. And somehow or another, they were tucked underneath a pair of my socks. They were there all along, and I finally had my prized possession of my goggles. When you lose something, when something that is important to you is lost, it doesn't matter how significant or insignificant it might seem to everyone else. You are almost consumed with finding that thing, right? And this is the type of uh, emotion that Jesus is using to teach us on the, in these parables of the finding the things that were lost. We have been, over the last several weeks, journeying through Luke, where we've been looking at these teachings of Jesus and applying them to our lives, trying to learn from them as Jesus desires for us too. And today, in Luke 15, we find ourselves at this pivotal moment where Jesus makes this bold claim, drawing contrast between him and the religious leaders of his day. If you can think back to the teachings that we have looked at over the last several weeks, Jesus is slowly and methodically challenging the Pharisees to see their neighbors, right? When Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is trying to help the Pharisees understand, the religious leaders of his day, understand that it is as important for them to love their neighbor uh, as it is for them to love God because you can't separate the two. You can't love God and not love your neighbor. And the only way for you to love your neighbor is if you see your neighbor, if you notice your neighbor, if you notice their needs. And, and, and when you begin to understand this teaching of Jesus, you begin to understand that religious practices should orient one towards their neighbor. Oftentimes what happens is that our religious practices tend to isolate us or set us apart from our neighbor. But the actual The purpose of religious practices is to orient us towards our neighbor. God, from the very beginning of Scripture, when he freed the nation of Israel and set them to live according to his ways, called upon them to be a blessing towards all of the other nations, to be an example of God's way, of God's kingdom, of grace and peace. This is why for us at Journey, we say every week that we are following the way of Jesus and learning to be present because we want to be present, noticing our neighbor so that we are able to live our lives in such a way to where we are examples of grace and peace. This is a hard lesson for us to learn. It was a hard lesson for the religious leaders of Jesus's day to learn. It was so difficult for them to learn and they were so opposed to learning it that some of them plotted together to kill Jesus rather than to accept his teachings as trustworthy. And here is where I think was a tipping point for many of them. They were in this system that had clearly outlined expectations and a way for them to climb up the religious ladder, to climb to religious heights. And Jesus came onto the scene suggesting that the kingdom of God is not an ascent to the top, rather it is a descent to the bottom. A kingdom where those despised by the broken order are cherished and those cherished are left without. These sayings, when Jesus talked about this sort of upside-down nature of his kingdom, when he called the despised people blessed, these aren't just sweet platitudes that Jesus offered to earn him favor with those down-and-out people. This was, as Jesus said, the pursuit and the reward of the kingdom. And this way threatens the establishment. Therefore, you have these disagreements between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day. The thing for us to remember always is that the kingdom of God is gifted to us. It's not earned. Even the most wealthy amongst us is unable to achieve the kingdom of God because it is a gift that is freely given to all of those who are willing to receive it. This is why when we have our opening confession at the beginning of our gatherings, we state perfection is a myth in need of a complete dependence upon God's grace. Perfection represents that pursuit that, that we are tempted by, that uh, that, that, uh, that desire, that drive for us to achieve and accomplish and earn. And we recognize that no matter what we achieve, what we accomplish, what we earn, that it is really an illusion of when compared to god's grace that god's grace is what forms what shapes what molds us and what leads us into the kingdom perfection is a myth in need of being replaced by a complete dependence on god's grace and the beauty of this is that when we embrace this full dependence on god's grace the fruit of the broken order in our lives, fear, judgment, frustration, frenzy, angst, animosity, the fear that creates uh, hatred so deep in people that they would uh, uh, conspire to fly fly planes into a building, the fear that causes us to look down on our neighbor, That all begins to dissipate and in its place in our lives grows the fruit of the Spirit, as Paul talked about. Love, joy, peace, patience, and so on. And when we think about and talk about how do we communicate the story of God, how do we tell the story of God, how do we share the story? the goodness of the gospel. In my opinion, one of the best ways for us to do that is to talk about this fear and judgment and rage and anger. These are things that all people deal with and struggle with and things that impinge upon their lives. And in many instances, we are helpless against these uh, negative emotions, but there is a way for us when we lay our lives down, when we set aside our pursuit of affection and live completely dependent upon God's grace, we are set free from those things and they are replaced with the fruit of the Spirit. And that is a good story to tell. These fruits, you cannot buy them, you cannot earn them, you cannot steal them. The only way that you can have them is if you receive them as the gift of God. In the kingdom of God, the beggar has as high of a standing as the billionaire. As I have been thinking about that statement, the beggar has as high of a standing as a billionaire. I've had this image reoccurring in my mind this week. We live in an area where it's not uncommon to see people on the corners or in the medians of the street begging for whatever, for money or um, food or whatever it is that they're begging for. And I don't know if it's, because football's starting back up or if you know if the Cowboys uh, are because they're playing today but I've had this image in my mind of these people who are standing on the corners begging in their tattered clothes and Jerry Jones standing beside them right? and that is the way that the kingdom of God looks right the beggar has the same standing as the billionaire of course You would never, driving through Dallas, you would never see Jerry Jones standing next to a beggar. If he did, his cardboard sign would say, please give me a Super Bowl, right, instead of food. But you would never see him standing on the street corner. Why? Because he is the billionaire. He is set apart, right? But that is not the way the kingdom of God exists. The beggar and the billionaire have the same standing. This is the foundation of the kingdom of God, and also it is something that for many people, they just simply cannot abide. Paul uh, in 1 Timothy wrote a scripture that I think is important for us to remember this. Now, before we read this scripture, right, Paul to us today is obviously a very foundational figure in our faith, right? Wrote most of the New Testament um, and and looking back upon him, we revere him. Um, if we were to have a similar way of talking about our faith as the Jewish people do, the the, the the faith of our forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Paul would probably be included in our lineage, right? He is that important. However, when Paul was writing these words that became the Bible, he was not aware that his words would be canonized in scripture, right? He was not aware that his words would one day be compacted into a, a, you know, papers, leather bound and read for generations to come. He was not aware of the, the status that he would have in the Christian church. But even then, when he was writing these letters, he was very influential for the people of his day. Right? He was, had a lot of um, credit, people trusted in what he said. And so understanding that makes what he said uh, in the way that he said it more impactful, I think. So here is what it says in what he wrote in First Timothy chapter 15. He says, "Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Now, probably for most of us, we should never tell someone to blindly accept what we are about to say, right? And if someone today were to say to you, "Hey, just don't think about what I'm saying, just accept it, don't analyze it, you probably shouldn't listen to them, right? Because that usually means that what they're saying is, uh, has some problems with it. But when Paul says this, this is the exact opposite of that. He says, here is something that is trustworthy, deserves full acceptance. Don't analyze it. No yeah buts here, right? Just trust and accept what I'm about to say. Right? That's what Paul is saying to us. He said, Christ Jesus came into the world to what? Save to save sinners, right? Yeah, that is a, that, sure, no problem there, right? As a beautiful statement, I fully, completely, wholly, 100% accept that. Jesus came to save sinners, yes. But Paul wasn't finished there, right? You no, know, he added to that. He said, Of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners. Again, this is Paul talking. Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. We often think that it is our religiosity, or our piety, or, um, you know, our set-apartness that reveals the best story of the grace of God. But according to Paul, it is the fact that he is completely dependent upon God's grace to form and shape and mold him that reveals him, uh, that sets him as an example for us to follow. See, here's an important truth for us. No matter how far we are along on our faith journey, you and I are completely dependent on God's grace to fulfill and mold and sustain us. We are completely dependent upon God's grace. It's not about us and what we have achieved. It is a complete and full gift. Dallas Willard, who is a great spiritual teacher, was writing about the gift of grace. And grace not only as the forgiveness of sins, but a forming presence in our lives. And he was also talking about how spiritual practices lead us. We talked about our religious practices orienting us towards our neighbor, that spiritual practices orient us towards our neighbor. They orient us towards grace. And we don't participate in these things to earn favor, but we do these things to, uh, so that we are living according to the ways of the kingdom. And here is what he said. He said, grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude. Effort is an action. Grace, you know, does not just have to do with forgiveness of sins alone. It is the grace of God that forms and shapes us. Spiritual practices and serving are efforts for us to live according to The kingdom of God. This is why it is so important for us at Journey to be a church in our community as opposed to a church only within the walls. We want to individually and collectively be involved in the work of the kingdom, which is leveraging our abilities and our influence and our resources to bless our neighbors. Each and every time we engage in the practice of leveraging our abilities and influence and resources to bless our neighbor, we are trusting this kingdom of one mentality that Jesus taught. And no matter how insignificant or significant that act might be, we are moment by moment being examples of the kingdom of God. Jesus said, rejoice in the one. When we learn to lay down our pursuit of gaining and protecting as much as I can, to leveraging all that I have for the sake of my neighbor, that is when we learn to truly live, to live the blessed life of the kingdom of God. Would you pray with me this morning? Jesus, when we talk about something so prized as your kingdom, as a gift, oftentimes it's like speaking a foreign language. Because we live in a what-have-you-done-for-me-lately kind of world where we have to earn everything and prove everything. But your gift of grace is completely, 100%, a gift that is given freely to us, to anyone who will Receive it. And so today, Jesus, may the gift of your grace capture our minds, capture our efforts, so that as we live and work and respond to your Holy Spirit that we would be examples of this free and abundant grace, this table that you set where there is room for all. We ask God that journey would be just that, a table where there is plenty of room for anyone who desires to gather. Help us, Jesus, to put people above our preferences. Help us to be oriented towards our neighbor instead of our own individual pursuits. We ask these things, Jesus, in your name and for your sake. Amen.